Brothers and sisters, uh, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll read from chapter 23 of Luke, starting at verse 24 through to verse 49. You'll see the verses of focus, 32 to 43. The title of today's message, If You Are the Christ, Save Yourself. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested, and he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him, But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, for indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? seeing you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen, amen. amen. Please be seated. Psalm 22 is an important psalm predicting much of what happened on the cross. As I read verses 1 through 21, listen to the predictions of the mocking that would take place. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. 
They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. So in Luke, we see both silent watchers and vocal scorners surrounded Christ while he suffered upon the cross. Both the strong bulls of Israel and the raging lions of Rome scorn Christ. Bach says Luke divides those observing this historic moment into two groups, the watchers and the mockers. The people stand watching, and this term for watching comes from Psalm 22.7. In the psalm, the same people both watch and mock. They are hostile to the sufferer. Luke's separation of watchers from mockers suggests that the people who watch are curious rather than neutral or mourning. They want to see the outcome of their demand for Christ's death. Their actions are not as severe as the leaders, but neither are they supportive of Christ. But the call for repentance, as we will see in Acts chapter 2, shows that the crowd was not positive on crucifixion day, but neither did they directly rebuke Jesus. They merely observe what is taking place. So today we will ponder the sneering, the mocking, and the blaspheming experienced by Christ our Lord upon the cross. As we hear God's word together today, let us all be pierced to consider our own sinful sneering and mocking, whether towards others or towards God. Let us all consider how our sinful flesh still influences us towards being condescending and sneering and scorning, that we may repent unto a deeper commitment to lives of love, a deeper commitment, especially in our attitudes and our words towards God towards others how do we make scornful demands of God himself how do we express sinful sneering in our lives did Jesus scorn his scorners in return how can our words be like the repentant criminal like the bold centurion both who praised Christ how can we live those kinds of lives to where our words would always be in that category or even better Like the words of Christ, Father, forgive them. Ephesians 4 instructs us, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. We heard it, did we not, today already. But what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Today's sermon is a call to consider our words, the words that come out of our mouths. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. We see, of course, the source of this kind of speech, these types of actions, comes from prideful, haughty hearts. May God deliver us all from such things. So first we'll look at the Jewish rulers and how they sneered in verse 35. We'll look at the Roman soldiers. They also mock Christ as well. And we'll see actually in verse 38, continuing, Pilate's actually mocking the entire Jewish nation with the placard that he puts above Christ's head. And then we'll see the theme continuing with the criminal blaspheming Christ and mocking him. And we'll see how these words are so similar from all of these camps that come against Jesus to look down upon him and to sneer and to mock and to laugh at him. 
And then, of course, some questions to know and to love and to obey God to see how we may grow up in Christ. So first of all, verse 35, the Jewish rulers sneered at Christ. The people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. Here we see both the watchers and the mockers mentioned by Luke. The crowd here is a mix of quiet watchers and vocal scoffers. But who spoke up for Christ? A crucified criminal defended Christ while he still lived, and a Roman centurion spoke up for Christ after he died. What about this idea of sneering? We've looked at it before. It is to deride by turning up the nose, to sneer at, to scoff at. It is to be disgusted. What kind of people sneer and scorn? What kind of people are express, have and express disgust towards other human beings? Why do they do this? Why do they mock and deride? Why do you mock and deride when you do this? These Jewish rulers in this text are amongst the scoffers. They should be leaders of humility as the shepherds of the people. But they're pridefully looking down on others. And they're using their tongue to mock and to wound as a tool to inflict injury. Now the Jewish leaders, they've done this before. I'm going to kind of take a walk through this idea of sneering and scorning that we see in Scripture In Luke 16, he used this word once before. The Pharisees did this. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The Pharisees were disgusted by this. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. But you know this concept is part of human nature. It's been here since the beginning. We see it throughout the Old Testament. Of course, we've already read how it was predicted by David the prophet in Psalm 22. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. So it was predicted by David. David experienced it as well. You know, Israel was mocked by their neighbors. This is nation mocking nation. We see this in Psalm 80. You have made us a strive to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Proverbs 17 teaches us the dangers of scorning, especially scorning the poor. He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Proverbs 30 teaches us the dangers of breaking the fifth commandment and the connection between being one who breaks the fifth commandment and becoming a scorner. The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. So hopefully this is laying out for you a sense of the importance of not being a scorner or a scoffer. We see God's prophet Jeremiah experiencing this scorn and derision. O Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I, and have prevailed. So it's Jeremiah becomes a prophet. Uh, You see how God brought him. And then Jeremiah says, I am derision daily. Everyone mocks me. That was Jeremiah's experience. We also see in Psalm 1, the opening, the beginning of that great book of singing inspired hymns that have been given to us. In in verse 1 and verses 4 through 6, the blessings of of avoiding the company of scoffers. This is so serious that we should avoid the company of those who are scorners and scoffers. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So you see, there's this gradual progression from walking to standing to sitting. It's the way the devil works. It's the way the... The world works, it's just a little bit at a time until you're sitting in the seat of the scornful. The ungodly are like the chaff which the wind drives away. This is the outcome of that life. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So we see here that the scorner the scoffer, the one who mocks, 
is, if you will, kind of the most advanced sinner in this progression. The one that is in the deepest pit of blindness, looking down on others, scorning other human beings, scorning even God. Now, the Lord God may righteously deride the wicked. And, and the Lord God does and will get the final word. And He tells us in His word that He looks down on the wicked in this fashion in righteousness because He is God. God laughs at those who scorned Jesus and at all who set themselves against Christ the King. So in Psalm 2, which I'll read, we know that it was fulfilled through Pilate and Herod, and you'll hear that scripture today from Acts chapter 4, but it's also fulfilled any time someone sets themselves against Christ the Anointed. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. See, they're mocking him. He's not really the king. He's not really the Messiah. That's the focus of the mockery. Oh, yes, he is. And the Lord God vindicates him. The father forsakes his son on the cross, leaving him to the mocking of these scorners. And yet it is in the way that he righteously endured that scorning that he becomes the great conqueror. The father resurrects Christ and sets his son as king of all, scorning the vain scorners, whose derision should terrify us more. Do you ever want to find yourself under the laughter and derision of God Almighty? God scorns all the wicked nations of the earth. It's not just nation scorning nation. We see in Psalm 59, but you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. So nations can find themselves in this situation. Leaders and nations. You know, individuals can find themselves. This, is a, this has always been a, a scary set of verses. Listen carefully to this. From Proverbs chapter 1. God scorns those who scorn his corrections. An individual can get to a point where God won't hear them anymore. Listen to this. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. And, and there, there seems to be this spirit of delighting in the scorning of Christ that took place around the cross that day. It's like it just welled up within them and they just had a scorn party on Christ. Scorners delight in their scorning. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. May our hearts rise up before God's throne at this time, saying, oh God, may that never be true of me or my descendants. May that never be true of anyone at Foothills Christian Assembly. Let's look at the content of the mockery. There's a continued theme that we see here as we look at the content of their mockery. Starting first with the Jewish leaders. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. See, they're laughing at Christ's humiliation and suffering. You see, by having him crucified, they believe they have proven their point that he is not the long-promised Messiah. That's the point they're making. 
By exercising this power over Christ, they believe they have displayed their own superiority to Jesus Christ. He's just another misled country preacher, fading to nothing, panting for breath, hung up by nails on the gibbet, having earned what he's getting. Now, they imply they would believe he is the Christ if he, if he could come down from the cross. If he would just come down, they imply they would believe him. But this is not true. They're just simply mocking his despair, his powerlessness, and his humiliation. They're delighting in their scorn. They're so creative in their sarcastic mockery. You can just hear them chuckling now, can't you? But they're not going to believe after the resurrection, are they? No miracle can convince the hard heart. They've already seen him save others from every disease. They know these things from every kind of demonic oppression and possession and even death itself on multiple occasions, raising the dead. And they still didn't believe. So they're just mocking Jesus. Bach says the leaders mock Christ's ability to deliver others and not himself. They derisively taunt him to save himself if this one is the anointed of God, the elect one. In this Greek word, this one is a derogatory term. If Jesus is God's elect, God will certainly save him. This taunt is sarcastic. They think they have stopped Christ. They are feeling good about having executed him. And this taunt echoes Psalm 22.8. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. God will answer their taunt in a surprising way in just a few days. God's chosen one will be vindicated. Note how they say, if he is the Christ. Do you hear that conditional phrase that they set up there? Note how scorners make themselves the judges of others, looking down on others. Whatever standard they're using, the other has failed. And in this scenario, these pitiful, wicked men set themselves as condescending judges of Jesus Christ, the glorious one. In the very moment of his triumph, he is triumphing over them as they mock him from the utter depths of blindness, foolishness, and pride. Listen to the description of the one they were mocking. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is the Messiah. He is the king, the one they were mocking. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ was triumphing over them as they mocked him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do in his meekness, and in his humility, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, when we look to him and we seek to be like him, so many answers come to us. Matthew Henry says about this, the rulers whom from their office one would take to be men of sense and men of honor stood among the rabble and derided him. And they said, he saved others, let him save himself. Thus was he upbraided for the good works that he had done, as if... It were indeed for these that they crucified him. They triumphed over him as if they had conquered him, whereas he was himself then more than a conqueror. They challenged him to save himself from the cross when he was saving others by the cross. If he be the Christ, the chosen of God, let him save himself. They knew that the Christ was the chosen of God, designed by him and dear to him. If he, as the Christ, would deliver our nation from the Romans, and they could not from any other, form any other idea than that of the Messiah, let him deliver himself from the Romans that have him now in their hands. 
Thus the Jewish rulers jeered him as subdued by the Romans instead of subduing them. They had a false idea of the Messiah as one who would come and immediately deliver them, providing geopolitical deliverance from the Roman Empire. They were wrong. They assumed that if they could have the Romans crucify Christ, it would prove he was not their Messiah. They were wrong. Note how they tell him to save himself. This is going to come up each time we see this. They look to Jesus. They say, save yourself. I want us to note how mockers believe power must be used first for self-protection. Mockers believe that such power must be first used for self-protection. Mockers cannot accept that God could be of such character as to submit himself to the derision and suffering cast upon him by his creatures. This is one of the essence features of your fallen flesh, of a culture built on the fallen flesh, of relationships built on the fallen flesh, of families built on this way of thinking. Save yourself. Self first. The worship of self is an idol that will not be released by scoffers. And they will mock others who do not embrace this. As I've said already, this mockery, I think it's worth noting, this mockery came from those who should have been the most humbled before God as shepherds of his people. Note how positions of spiritual leadership held by the carnal-minded leads to dangerous blindness, misuse of power, and terrible humiliation and mistreatment of others. Next, the Roman soldiers also mock Christ. In verse 36 and 37, we see this. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So we see this scorning party is spreading. It's not just limited to the Jewish leaders. Likely influenced by the general attitude of disgust that had been set forth by, set forth by the crowd who had cried out, crucify him, crucify him. See, that same momentum is in place here. The soldiers saw this. Now, the vocal mocking leaders bring that momentum even higher and the Roman soldiers just can't even resist. Now, there's some sources that find this hard to believe because the Roman soldiers were actually very professional. And they were, they were supposed to just do their job and keep out of this kind of stuff. But it just shows how much momentum there was present in derision and scorning towards God on the cross. Now, we saw that the Jews had focused their mockery upon Christ as the Messiah. But the soldiers focused their mockery on Christ as a king. What kind of king would do this? If there was such a king with such power as he supposedly had, he certainly would not be nailed to our cross. He would not be subservient to Pilate or Herod or even to Caesar if he was such a great king. Matthew Henry says the Roman soldiers jeered him as the king of the Jews, a people good enough for such a prince and a prince good enough for such a people. They mocked him, they made sport with him, and made a jest of his sufferings. And when they were drinking sharp, sour wine themselves, so this was likely their drink, going on with Henry, such as was generally allotted to them, they triumphantly asked him if he would pledge them or drink with them. Hey, king, have a drink with us. And they said, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. For as the Jews prosecuted him under the notion of a pretended Messiah, so the Romans under the notion of a pretended king. So do see here this common thing. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So another hallmark of the essence of our flesh is to make ourselves judge of everything. Judge of ourselves, judge of others, and judge of God. To make ourselves God. If, that great word, there they are setting themselves as judge over God the way that the Jewish leaders had done. If you ever do this with God, <laughs> you ever start off a 
prayer to God with the word if, be careful. The Roman soldiers again, save yourself, because no god or king would ever lay aside power and accept suffering and mistreatment instead of exercising divine power for self-deliverance. You see, the human heart, apart from being born again from above, this is the craziest idea that we would lay down our lives for others. If we have the ability to make it stop, if we can rise up in our own power and make it stop, of course we will. Jesus did not. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Pilate continues the mockery. It's helpful to see verse 38 here from Luke kind of painting this picture of just this piling on of mockery. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Pilate wanted everybody to know. Greek. Jew. Roman. Everybody to know. Here's what we think about the Jews. Here's what we think about their king. So the theme of of mocking goes on. And, you know, I want us to look at John because it tells us clearly that Pilate did this. Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And this was a customary thing. They would create this titular, T-I-T-U-L-A-R was the name of the placard that they would put up over the head of the one who was being crucified. It would have their name and it would have their crime. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but write, he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So while Pilate's aim was primarily to mock the entire Jewish nation, Such mockery certainly extends to Christ, given that he is being crucified at that moment by the Romans. Pilate is declaring the superiority of Caesar over the Jewish king, over any Jewish king, as if to say that Christ or any other such man is as little as nothing compared to the universal power and reign of Rome. Marshall says in his commentary, this is the climax to the mockery. This climax is provided by the superscript superscription that is placed over Jesus. Note how nations with global sway scoff at Christ as king, caught up in the delusion of their almighty power. They will scoff such nations at Christ or any other power that would come against their global sway. Again, Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is the standard operating procedure of centralized, tyrannical governments that gain world power. Fulfilled in Herod and Pilate, but also in all who act similar to Herod and Pilate. Acts 4, we see clearly Psalm 2 was fulfilled in Herod and Pilate, but it has an ongoing fulfillment as well whenever anybody acts like them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see, this is a model prayer for all who face tyrannical central governments and believe that their power is anything compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not get yourself in trouble with Jesus Christ. It's true these people do not know who they're dealing with. Herod didn't know it. Pilate didn't know it. And I'll never forget when Jeff Botkin said that to that uh, arranged, excuse me, that group of people who had arranged themselves under that giant tree in South Sudan to hear what it means to be a Christian nation. 
thinking that the United States had some answers for them, and we had to disabuse them of that lie. Our nation has no answers for them today on what it means to be a Christian nation. He told them, I believe rightly so, the United States of America is in trouble with Jesus Christ. How do you think Christians today act the same way as Pilate? Act the same way as Herod? Do you really think that all of our guns and bombs and warheads and warships and submarines and satellites can really protect us? Do you really think that? Please, stop idolizing the United States of America if you believe that. We are as nothing before the God of heaven. There is no protection for us in our warfighting ability. Jesus Christ will wipe us off the face of the earth if he deems it to be so. As he did the Romans. Eventually, first the Jews. So how do we treat the laws and the powers of the United States of America as greater than the laws and the powers of Christ the King? I mean, even stepping back from idolatry of our military prowess, how about idolatry of our laws? Treating our laws as if they are of more importance than the laws of Christ our King. Treating the powers of our nation as more important than the powers of Christ our King. So may we learn from this particular text that many would put up a placard over the heads of the people of God to mock us. And we will just simply join in with the saints of the first century and cry out to God to pour out His Holy Spirit. Going on, the criminal blasphemes Jesus. It just continues from Pilate to the thief. Not only did the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders and the Roman soldiers mock and scorn Christ on the cross, but the criminal up there with him. No power over Christ. These others had power over Christ. This doesn't, person doesn't even have any power over Christ, but he's still mocking him. What is his motive? Selfishness. He wants to be saved. He's thinking maybe he can maybe provoke Christ into anger. Okay, these other people haven't made him mad enough. Maybe I can make him mad enough to hop down from this cross and save us all. But just like them, he's putting Christ on, on trial as well. He starts out with if. And he's assuming no Messiah would choose not to use his power for self-deliverance. He uses the same phrase, save yourself. But he adds this. He says, save yourself and us. <laughs> you see, this, mis- this man misunderstands the nature of Christ's salvation for sinners. This man misses the critical fact that the Christ had to suffer and die. The Christ had to suffer and die for his elect. So the very last thing that any needy sinner wants is for Christ to come down from the cross and save himself. That would be the most horrible fate any sinner could ever see take place. Think of it. Here is this man suffering beside Jesus Christ, observing Christ's humility and meekness, yet still so blinded as to attack him and make demands of him. And you do know, of course, that this is a picture of our own flesh, right? This is why we are in such great need of God's salvation. Because this, you think maybe, which, which guy would you have been? We've talked about this. Which person on the cross would you have been apart from God's grace? There's only one answer, right? You would have been mocking Jesus as well. If you were a Jewish leader, apart from God's grace, what would you have done? You would have been mocking Jesus. If you were a Roman soldier, apart from God's grace, what would you have done? You would have mocked him as well. Matthew Henry says about the criminal, though he was now in pain and agony and in the valley of the shadow of death, yet this did not humble his proud spirit nor teach him to give good language. No, not to his fellow sufferer. Though thou bray a fool in a mortar, yet will not his foolishness depart from him. No troubles will of themselves work a change in a wicked heart, but sometimes they irritate the corruption which one would think they should mortify. He challenges Christ to save both himself and them. Note, there are some that have the impudence to rail at Christ 
and yet the confidence to expect to be saved by him. Nay, and to conclude that if he do not save them, he is not to be looked upon as the Savior. Oh, well, he won't save me the way that I want him to save me? Well, he must not be any kind of Savior then. I think we see, and I mentioned this before, how mockery and scorning demonstrate some aspect of the terminal blindness of the lost. It is, it is not just that they have hardened their own hearts, but they've experienced the hardening of God upon their hearts as well. And this double hardening is coming to the spot of total blindness. Now, here's a question as we come into our time of application. How concerned should we be? How concerned should you be for your soul if scorn or mockery or belittling or scoffing are ever a part of your attitude and your speech? Is that to ever be a part of Christian attitudes and Christian speech ever? Now, if you can find a spot in scriptures where we see human beings scorning and belittling other human beings in derision, righteously, please show me. Because I didn't read the whole Bible for today's sermon. But I couldn't find it. It appears to me that God alone can have derision towards sinners and remain righteous. And do it in righteousness. So, is this important for us to consider? Is it good for us to examine ourselves and to see where we might be having this tendency and how we need to be sanctified? So, first of all, was Jesus Christ vindicated from this event? Everybody say yes. Yes, he was. Okay? He was totally vindicated. Now, how was he vindicated and by whom? By whom was Jesus Christ vindicated? God the Father. How did God the Father vindicate Jesus Christ? By raising him from the dead and and seating him at his right hand. Has anybody else ever gone through that before Jesus Christ? Is there anybody else at God the Father's right hand? There's only one. And it's right here in Ephesians uh, chapter 1. And I'm, I'm giving it to you. It's verses 20 and 21. So by the Almighty Father... That's how he was vindicated. That's who vindicated him by his mighty power. When he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far, not a little bit, far above all rule, power, might, and dominion, and above every name forever. Pilate, Herod, Jewish leaders, you name it, the highest place. Where is he now? Still there. Has anyone ever risen up even close to him? No, he's far above. Any power, any authority, institution, you name it, over the whole earth right now, NSA, satellites, all that they have, are they anywhere near the power of Jesus Christ, any of them? Not even close. Praise be to God for our Savior and our King, Jesus Christ. Now, one thing that didn't happen is that Jesus Christ did not vindicate himself. It's worth noting. Now, that's part of what's caught up in this Luke 23, 46, where Jesus Christ says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus trusted his Father. See, this is the ultimate creaturely humility, entrusting his entire existence into his Father's hands, knowing that his Father would keep his promises to him. See, he entrusted himself to his Father who judges justly, and we can do the same thing. As we discussed last week, if we suffer for doing good, we also will be vindicated. So, will all in Christ who suffer for doing good be vindicated? Are they to vindicate themselves? No. So, how will those in Christ be vindicated and by whom? You see, this is at the heart of humility and meekness. Entrusting ourselves to the Lord. We will be vindicated in Christ by God only, fully and finally, at the resurrection. All for Christ's glory. 
And it will not ultimately be our vindication. It will just be more of Christ's vindication. His resurrection wasn't just for Himself. It was for all who trust in Him. And when we stand on the earth alive forever in glorified bodies looking at each other, maybe it will be somewhere around here, glorying in the greatness of Jesus Christ, we'll all be vindicated. And we won't really even care that we've been vindicated. What we'll care about is that Jesus Christ has gotten more glory. May that be true for us every day, yes? And we just want Christ's name to be lifted up. We want Christ to be glorified. We want Him to be seen and worshipped and loved for who He is. That's what we want. There is no one like Jesus Christ. And our lives are of value to the extent that He fills us and lives in us and through us. This is when we're vindicated. Might God choose to vindicate us to some extent in this life? He may. He may. And we leave that in His hands. We do know the state is given the ministry of justice. We do know that God cares about justice and truth and righteousness. And so, yes, there are times in this life where we're vindicated as well. But don't let it be an idol for you. Don't let it be an idol for you. So I want you to now imagine standing there in the crowd. Okay? Jesus has carried his cross some of the way, probably dropped it. Simon's picked it up. You've seen it. You've walked along. You've watched it. You saw the women mourning. You heard Jesus warn them about the coming destruction of Israel again. And you're watching it happen. You're, you're hearing the voices. You arrive. You see the nails go through his hands and through likely through his feet. Uh, you see the vertical beam, that's, I mean the vertical post that's already there in the ground. Uh, you see the two criminals there with him. And they lift them up and place them on the vertical beam. You hear the sounds, uh, the, the panting for breath, the, the moaning in pain. And all the people are gathered together. And you, you hear these leaders. These are your leaders. These are your leaders mocking him and shaming him. You hear the Romans mocking him and shaming him. You hear even the criminal on the cross mocking him and shaming him. You You remember Pilate couldn't keep him from being crucified. You heard, crucify him, crucify him. You're standing there. And, you know, are you a watcher? Are you a scorner? Are you a defender? Now, these may seem like silly questions, but don't think that that kind of situation won't happen in your life from time to time. We live in a scornful world. We live in a world that rejoices in scorning Christ and His ways, that rejoices in mocking scriptural principles. Will you be a watcher? Will you be silent? Will you be a scorner and join in? Or will you be a defender? Those are the three that we see, right? So how can you know? Here's some questions. What is the heart of a scorner? What is the heart of someone who scoffs? I looked at a number of scriptures. Many would do, but I think Proverbs twenty-one twenty-four is the clearest. A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name. He acts with haughty pride. So it is this that is the opposite of humility that produces the opposite of meekness. It is, it is an inward disposition of humility that produces the meekness that we see in Jesus Christ and that we all long for. And the opposite of that is not having a humble disposition. Not having a deep awareness of your littleness, um, but a very deep awareness of your bigness, your importance, and the littleness of others. So this is what's in the heart of a scoffer. It's what's in the heart of all of us in our flesh. So when are you like this? When does your fallen flesh rear up in haughty pride and look down on others? Here's some things that might help you help jog your memory. Jog your memory if nothing came to mind. Consider when you have differing views of ethical or theological questions. Now, I'm trying to help 
all of us see that we're probably like this with those outside the church and those inside the church. Like, I'm not even going to try to convince you that you struggle with scoffing at drag queens, okay? We all struggle with that, and we're going to see that. Well, what about within the church? Like, how about Calvinism versus Arminianism? What tone do you have when you speak of the doctrinal positions of brothers and sisters in Christ? How about God's law? What, what, is, what is your tone and your heart as you speak about those who have different views of God's law? Apologetics. You know, there's a lot of debate amongst theologians about the meaning of knowledge, the source of knowledge, the foundation of knowledge. It's an important conversation. I have listened to and, and myself been uh, not irenic in these conversations about apologetics. How about eschatology? You see where I'm going with this? Like, watch out for this. It's one of the reasons I'm so grateful for Pastor Kaiser's writing. Over and over and over again, he takes us to this irenic, humble, meek way of dealing with disagreements. How about corporate worship? I mean, I know that I have made lots of bad jokes about various things that go on in corporate worship. And was I being mocking and scorning? Probably. Probably. How about clothing standards? Other people dress differently than you do. You you giggle about it. You laugh about it. Or, Or you make fun of clothing in a movie. Maybe that's how it comes out. How about Christian education? Individuals who choose to place their children in educational settings where Christ is scorned and mocked. Have you ever said anything that you wish you hadn't said? How about creationism versus evolution? How about uh, hairstyles? How about movie and music choices? So... What I'm trying to get us to see is that there's a a fundamental humility that can come to us in Christ that can wash all this away. And and that we will see that this matters in every place where we open our mouth and every, every time we have a thought. So do you see this in yourself, the same heart as the Jewish leaders, as the soldiers, as Pilate, as Herod, as the thief? You know... Save yourself or save others, right? Because really, when you mock somebody, you're just throwing them under the bus, right? And, and a lot of times, it's just a way of trying to save ourselves, to lift ourselves up and make ourselves seem more important. So is there a solution to this, brothers and sisters? <laughs> Who will rescue me from this body of death? Okay, is grace greater than sin? Yes, let's say it together. Grace is greater than sin. Grace is greater than sin. Let me ask you this. Is God going to give up on any of his elect? No, no. Has he promised to complete in us the work that he's begun? Yes, yes. So we want to finish up in this sermon filled with hope. Filled with hope. So first of all, Trust in God to change you as you look to Christ. Forgetting what's behind. Yes, we've all failed in this area and maybe it just seems like it'll never go away. Or maybe there's people you know that are really bad about this and they don't see this in themselves. That's a dangerous place for you to be, to be thinking that. Because maybe you're the one that's really scornful. But in any case... Don't give up on yourself or any other Christian. Trust in the Father to change you as you look to Christ. It's really as simple as just remembering Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And looking to him and seeking to emulate him in every situation, like right there. That, 
that is everything we need to know about the Christian life right there. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We see Jesus Christ entrusting himself to his Father, humbling himself, embracing his littleness, and having a mild disposition in his expression towards all. Do you cry out to God to give you his Holy Spirit? Is that a part of your regular prayers? And do you trust your Father in heaven to give you his Holy Spirit if you ask him to? Like, I feel like maybe every sermon ends with this as a point of application, right? Because we must have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God if we are going to be growing up and become the humble, meek Christ followers that we desire to be. Are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Same question. What role is the Word of God playing in your life? You know, Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And then he uses two words, with all lowliness and gentleness. All lowliness and gentleness. These are the qualities of Christ on the cross. And this word lowliness is sometimes also translated humility. And it, the, the key definition there is a deep sense of your own littleness. That's an internal work of God. And then this word gentleness is also translated meekness. And it is the external expression of that internal state. So anytime we're not meek, it's because we're not humble. And anytime we're acting nasty in our expression in ways that are not meek, not entrusting ourselves to God, we're acting out of pride. The text goes on with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Did Jesus demonstrate long-suffering on the cross? Yes, he did. And he can bring us into that with him. You know, it's, it's humility that enables us to be of the same mind. Romans 12, 16 talks about being, dwelling in harmony with one another and seeking to be of the same mind with one another. We're going to look at that today during our time of fellowship. That won't happen if we're not humble. It is humility that allows us to stop thinking about our own ideas and to zip the mouth and open the ears and understand what's important to the other person, how the other person thinks, and to go to God's word together so that we can become of one mind. Because do we want to be of Matt's mind or of... Clayton's mind or Robbie's mind? No, we want to be of whose mind? Christ's mind. That's the one mind we're after. And so we humble ourselves before one another, but ultimately before his word. So the Lord Jesus Christ has promised that he will fill us with his Holy Spirit as we cry out to him and that he will continue to shape us and change us. And what that's going to look like is this increasing humility and increasing meekness in our lives. And one mark of that, praise be to God, will be a decrease in our scornfulness, our tendency to mock. Watch out for sarcasm. A lot of times sarcasm is a disguise for this kind of attitude. And God will deliver us from it. And what will it look like? Well, we will be speaking edifying words to one another. We will be building one another up in our words. Think of that. So that our community, our families, our workplace, everywhere we go, God will have a hold of our tongue through humbling us and making us meek so that our words and our actions will be for the purpose of building one another up. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask you, Lord God,
for the sake of your name, for the sake of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, to humble us, to grant us the life of Christ in us and through us, that he would increase and we would decrease. And the expression of this would be the meekness, the gentleness of Jesus Christ in our lives, so that all of the words and actions of our lives would come out to your glory, for your kingdom, for your praise, for your honor, for your exaltation, and for the blessing of those around us. In Jesus' name.